This is the word of God. Verse 31. In the meantime, the disciples were imploring him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you have not known of. Therefore, the disciples were saying to one another, nobody brought him something to eat, right? Jesus says to them, my food is that I continually do the will of him who sent me and that I finish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then the harvest comes? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the fields, for they are white to harvest. Already the harvester draws his wages and gathers the crop into eternal life, so that the sower and the harvester may be glad together. Herein is the truthfulness of the saying that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to harvest what you have not toiled laboriously for. Others have toiled laboriously, and you have entered in to their labor. The word of God. Let's pray together. As always, Father, we praise you for the glorious opportunity to be able to worship you like this. We thank you for calling us into your body and your true church, for saving us by your grace, and for enabling us to do your will and to worship you. We ask at this time you would glorify yourself the most possible, that you would glorify yourself in the mere proclamation of this truth, and that you would also glorify yourself in the effects of it. We know that none of this is possible but by your Spirit, so by your Spirit this time we ask that you would enable me to communicate this clearly and that you would cause us to respond rightly to these truths. We ask that you would make our food to be doing your will, just as Christ's food was to do your will. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. The main point of our passage today is this, that the joy of God and the joy of man are simultaneous with each other, that God's joy and man's joy are deeply interconnected, and by joy, I don't mean a sensation of happiness, I'm referring to the the true gladness of heart which comes from doing and being the way we're supposed to be. The gladness which comes from the fulfillment of our deepest desires. And this scripture illuminates this relationship between God's joy and our joy in such a marvelous way. And I hope too that you will be able to see this morning how you can be filled with joy, true joy. And so with that in mind, I'd like to trace two distinct theological threads through this passage. The first being God's joy and the other one being man's joy. So let's look first at the joy of God. The opening line in our passage frames the context for the rest of the dialogue. Let me read to you starting in verse 31. In the meantime, in the meantime, referring to the time in between Jesus' marvelous encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and his subsequent two-day stay in Samaria. So if you recall from last time, Jesus and his disciples had just finished a long hot day's march through the Fertile Valley and they reclined at Jacob's well in Sychar where Jesus then dispatched the disciples to a little hill village in order to purchase food, and he engaged the Samaritan woman in evangelism and ministry. After ministering, after ministering to her, she goes back to her town and tells everybody about Christ, and then on her testimony, they, come, they all come out to see Christ themselves. And it's in between the time when the Samaritan woman went back to the town and all of the townspeople come out that this dialogue happens. And so once the Samaritan woman goes, the disciples come back, They have the food which Jesus sent them to get, and now this dialogue ensues. Um, Continuing in verse 31, the disciples were imploring him, saying, Rabbi, eat. If you recall from verse 6 of this chapter, when Jesus sat down at the well of Sychar, he was extremely wearied. 
Not only was he weary from the march now, but he had also just finished ministering to the Samaritan woman. So he was exhausted and likely very hungry. Thus the disciples, out of a genuine concern for his physical well-being, were imploring him to eat. They were continually urging him to eat the food that he himself sent them to get. And then we see in verse 32, but, but he said to them, it's an unexpected response they get from Christ. He continues, I have food to eat which you have not known of. He uses this as an occasion to teach his disciples and to teach us today a critical spiritual truth. And that is that there is a hunger of far greater priority to God and to us than physical hunger. And he also so graciously reveals the food which satisfies the spiritual hunger. Just like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman at the well, where he moved from the physical water to the spiritual water, so too does Christ do now with his disciples. He goes from the physical and material food to the spiritual food. And the spiritual food he makes out to be far more important, far more necessary than the physical food. Because at this point, it's his excuse for not eating the food they brought him. Perhaps it, his, his um, desire for the spiritual food was so great that it dwarfed his desire for physical food, such that it, it was negligible to him. And as is common in the fourth gospel, the argument here proceeds by way of misunderstanding. The disciples don't get what he's saying. Verse 33, therefore the disciples were saying to one another, nobody brought him something to eat, right? And this must have seemed very strange to them. Because Christ was tired and hungry when he sent them out to go get food. And now they've got the food he told them to get, and now he doesn't eat. However, the scriptures are making them out right now to be as obtuse as Nicodemus was or as the Samaritan woman was, or as the Jews generally were, that they're not understanding the spiritual meaning behind what he says. Um, And they weren't able to understand it either. Uh, They wanted to, thus they were continually discussing this among themselves, wanting to know if perhaps somebody else brought them food, but they couldn't. Their minds were still blinded by their carnality. They were still unspiritual, and they couldn't perceive the true meaning behind Christ's statement here. And Augustine remarked in light of this verse, He said, what wonder if that woman, talking about the Samaritan woman, did not understand about the water. See, the disciples here do not yet understand the meat. Surprising, I mean, we can't expect the Samaritan woman at the well to understand what the living water was about if his own disciples don't understand what the spiritual food is about either. Um, Even though they want to understand this, for some reason they don't ask Christ. Uh, They're discussing this among themselves, but they don't ask Jesus why he doesn't want to eat or what this means. Perhaps because they were afraid. Um, That happened once in in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus talked about his death. They didn't want to ask him about it. Um, At any rate, though, Jesus, even though the question wasn't posed to him, tells them what he means in verse 34. Jesus says to them, says is in the present tense, meaning that you can understand that as he says to them then and he's saying to us still now. This is what he says. My food is that I continually do the will of him who sent me, and that I finish his work. His food is, was, and still is, that he continually does the will of God and finishes the work that God has given him. Now, when we think about food, what is food? Food is that which satisfies our hunger. And so when we're talking about spiritual food, we're talking about that which satisfies our spiritual hunger. And what Christ is saying here, is that his continually doing the will of God and finishing the work God has given him satisfies his spiritual hunger. What he's not saying, I've heard this taught, is that him doing God's will is satisfying his physical hunger. 
It's not satisfying his physical hunger. He's talking about a spiritual hunger here. And the spiritual hunger opens up wide the heart of God to us. It's amazing. We actually get a glimpse into the very heart of God here. Because what he's saying is that this spiritual food, doing God's will, is what satisfies the deepest appetite of his soul, which is to please God. Um, The food which satisfies him is doing God's will. The reason it satisfies him is because his deepest desire is to please God. And the reason why he has that desire is because of his unfathomable love for God. See, by definition, doing what somebody wills, doing what somebody desires, is doing what pleases them. And so for Christ, since his deepest desire is to do what pleases God, doing God's will, doing what God wants, is the way he fulfills that desire because it's what pleases God. And so the food is continually doing the will of God because it satisfies his hunger, his hunger to please God, which is born out of his deep love for God. Um, He continues in verse 35, Do not say that there are yet four months in the harvest. So he tells us that doing the will of God and completing his work is his food. It's what satisfies his hunger. And now he uses a parable to reveal more about what this work is. So what is the nature of this work? When he says there are yet four months and then the harvest, there's a lot of discussion among the commentators as to whether or not this was a common proverb in the time or if this was something that the disciples were saying in passing as they were walking through the, through the grain fields. You know, there's four months to harvest now. Or if this was perhaps him just stating a simple fact. At any rate, it's clear that the point of this proverb is that there's a time interval between the activity of sowing and the activity of reaping. In other words, You don't sow and then reap at the same time. You sow and there's four months or whatever time period until the harvest comes. And so he uses this agricultural metaphor, which would have been very fitting for them since they were an agricultural society, to communicate more about the nature of his work, this work which is his food to do, which satisfies his desire to please God. And the key point in this parable is that he's contrasting the physical harvest to the spiritual harvest. It's not a comparison. He's not saying it's like the physical harvest. He's saying that in this particular way, it's different. And what particular way is that? We can continue in verse 35. Jesus says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the fields, for they are white to harvest. He opens up with this familiar, you say, but I say to you formula, something that we're very used to in the scriptures. And he issues his disciples three commands. They all have essentially the same meaning. Behold, look, Lift up your eyes and see the fields, all intended to have the complete effect of awakening them from their spiritual slumber and looking at the spiritual meaning which he is speaking of. Calvin quoted, he he said, How much more careful men's minds are for earthly things than for the heavenly. For they are so consumed with looking for harvest that they carefully count up the months and days, but it's surprising how lazy they are in reaping the wheat of heaven. Christ tries to wake them up from this carnal ignorance of theirs. He tries to point their minds, to direct their attention to the spiritual harvest he's speaking of. And it's important to notice that during this time, the wheat or, or the grain that, um, that they were harvesting wasn't white. During this period, it was actually green still. And so when Jesus is saying, look, the, the fields are white to harvest, he's not referring to the physical fields because the physical fields are still green. Um, by ordinary reckoning, it would have been four months or so, until the harvest would have started to turn white. And so what Jesus is pointing them to, what he's directing their attention to, isn't the physical fields. 
he's very likely directing their attention to the Samaritans who are coming through the fields, who are coming based on the woman's testimony in the town to Christ. And so as he's looking out at the fields, he sees that they're not green, that, that, there's, that they're not ready to harvest yet. But then he sees the Samaritans and their shining white clothes in the sun coming towards them. And he says, look, they're white to harvest. He's referring to the Samaritans. He's referring to the spiritual harvest. The point of it is this, that there is a time interval between the physical harvest such that the sower and the reaper do not occur at the same time. But here he's saying this, that there is no delay in the spiritual plane. That in the spiritual harvest, the sower and the reaper operate at the same time. And he continues to eliminate this interval in verse 36. Already the harvester draws his wages and gathers the crop into eternal life. A lot of your Bible translations will probably have the word already placed in the previous verse, but it actually fits better here in verse 36. Um, if you remember, in, in the original manuscripts, there aren't any um, breaks, or there's no, there's no space between sentences, there's no space in, in between words. And so verses are, are artificial lines. It's important to recognize that that's not actually the way it is. Um, so the already here is saying that the harvester is already drawing his wages. The reason why that's important is because harvesters usually weren't paid until work was completed. Or even if they weren't paid until work was completed, they at least would be paid in stages. So they would do some work and then they would get paid and they would do some more work and then they would get paid. He continues here to eliminate this interval, this four months time between what the sowers do and what the reapers do. He says that the harvesters are already getting paid even though the physical fields are white. And what's the point of that? Because he's not talking about physical fields, he's talking about the spiritual field. He's talking about the Samaritans. Jesus later reveals in this parable, which we'll get to in a second, that the harvester here are his disciples. Um, he identifies that clearly that it's his disciples then and it's his disciples now, it's us. And that this crop that they gather is a spiritual crop, it's the crop of the Samaritans. Um, even though in a wider sense, it's not just the Samaritans, the crop is all of those God has decided to save. And then when he says, they gather the crop into eternal life, still in verse 36, eternal life isn't the reward. Eternal life is, is the storehouse. It's the granary into which they gather the crop in. So he's like, it's like he's saying that his disciples are gathering souls, they're gathering the Samaritans into eternal life, into, into spiritual life. That's what the spiritual harvest is. It's us, Christ's disciples, gathering others, gathering ourselves, gathering our families, gathering our churches, gathering our neighbors and the lost into the storehouse of eternal life. More and more bringing ourselves into the spiritual life Christ is speaking of. And it's already happening. Jesus says that this is already happening, that there's no four-month period between what the reaper does and what the harvester does, that the harvester is already reaping. And what is the purpose of this? we arrive at what I believe is the focal point of this passage now. Continuing in verse 36, Jesus says this, So that the sower and the harvester may be glad together. Let me read the whole verse for you. Already the harvester draws his wages and gathers the crop into eternal life. And for what purpose is this? So that the, har the sower and the harvester may be glad together. The reason why the harvester is already drawing his wages, is so that the sower and the harvester may be glad together. That's the purpose of this happening. This is very different than the physical harvest. Um, in the physical harvest, the sower does his work, and then it's several months until the reaper does his work, and 
the joy of a successful operation doesn't occur until after the harvester has done his work. But here Jesus is saying that it happens at the same time. That the sower and the reaper are rejoicing together. That their joys are simultaneous with each other. This is, the, this is the biggest difference between the physical harvest and the spiritual harvest. And Jesus says this in reference to a promise made back in Amos. Amos chapter 9, uh, verse 13. We have this promise about the end of time in reference to the restoration of Israel. Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. Amos is saying, that there will come a time when the person who plants the seed will be overcome by the person who harvests the crop. In other words, there won't be a difference in time between what this sower does and what this reaper does. Now in this parable, we know that the harvester is his disciples. And what we also find out is that the sower is Christ. A lot of people think that the sower is the prophets here the prophets of the Old Testament, and perhaps John the Baptist. But there are many reasons why this cannot be the case. Um, too many of them I can't share with you right now. Uh, but for one, there's an antithetical parallelism going on here. In other words, there's grammar that, that indicates this. Uh, the same word and the same uh, syntax is used in reference to Christ earlier in this passage that's used here now of the sower. Um, the, the nature of their relationship as follows also makes it clear that Christ is the sower. And the development of this argument and theological consistency throughout the rest of the scriptures also indicates that Christ is the sower here. Um, there are also ten other reasons why Christ is the sower. Uh, what he's saying is that Christ as the sower and us as the harvesters rejoice together. That our joys are simultaneous and as we're going to see in a second that they're deeply interconnected. Jesus masterfully and beautifully ties what they're seeing, these Samaritans coming through the fields towards them, into a parable to reveal these profound and critical truths in, in such plain and relevant and organic ways. He's talking to them about something that they're seeing, and he's turning that into a parable so that they can understand something much deeper about his joy and about their joy. We already talked about how the food of Christ is to do the will of God and to finish his work. And that is the work of the sower. So when he's talking about the work God has given him to finish, it's the work of the sower. And unlike in the physical harvest, the joy of the sower and the joy of the harvester happen at the same time. That's the point of using this analogy. And so what's the nature of Christ's work as a sower? He calls himself a sower. He said that this is the work that God has given him to do. So what is this work exactly? In order to make this next point, Jesus introduces what we know for sure was a common proverb back then. It was common to both the Greeks and the Romans. He says in verse 37, one sows and another harvests. Now typically if there was a difference between the person who sows and the person that harvests, it was, it was usually in a criminal sense. So somebody would harvest or, or somebody would, would sow a crop, um, they, they would cultivate it, and then somebody else would come along and steal that from them. So this wasn't usually viewed in, in a positive sense, it was actually viewed in a negative sense, that, that the person who sowed, the person who worked hard to grow this, this produce isn't going to get what he worked hard for. Instead, somebody else is going to come and steal that from him. This is the same way in which the prophet Micah uses this proverb earlier. We have in Micah 6.15, talking about the judgment on Israel, you will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but you will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. 
In other words, he's saying that what you work hard for, you're not going to enjoy the fruit of. Um, however, Christ here isn't using it in that negative sense. He's actually, he, he's using it to draw a distinction between the role of the harvester and the role of the sower. He says that there is a difference between the work of the sower and the work of the harvester, but there is actually a positive outcome for both of them. In other words, it's not negative for the sower and then positive for the um, harvester. It's actually positive for both of them, and justly so, not because of um, the harvester stealing the sower's work. He maintains the same roles, but he contrasts the outcome uh, between what the harvester takes and what the sower um, plants. And then he says in verse 37 that the truthfulness of this common proverb lies in what he will say next. He reads, Herein is the truthfulness of the saying that one sows and another harvests. Verse 38, I sent you to harvest what you have not toiled laboriously for. Others have toiled laboriously, and you have entered into their labor. He's saying that this proverb proves true, that one sows and another reaps, but not in the way that they expected to hear it prove true. And then picking this verse apart, he says, I sent you. So this is past tense. It's, it's referring either to verse 2 in which Christ um, in which it talks about the disciples going and baptizing many people, or perhaps when he first called his disciples to be fishers of men. Um, either way, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to his harvesters, and he's saying that he's sent them to harvest what they have not toiled laboriously for. And what they have not toiled laboriously for parallels what the sower's work was. So what's synonymous with saying they were to harvest what the sower produced. Um, they were to harvest what they did not toil laboriously for, but what the, what the sower toiled laboriously for. And so it's from this that we can better discern what the nature of Christ's work as a sower is. Um, he is the others, by the way. It's not others in the sense of, of, of a plural, that there's many other people who were the sower. It's a plural for consistency with the proverb, or a plural of category. You should read this as, as Christ is the other. So when he says, others have toiled laboriously, read that as Christ has toiled laboriously, and you have entered into his labor. Um, he is the sower, and thus he is the one who's doing this work, this toilsome, laborious work, and it is his crop which we reap, and it is his labor into which we enter as his disciples and his harvester. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about what this toilsome labor is. This is a dramatic understatement, and translating it almost ruins the true meaning of the word no matter what you do. The word kapon, I want you to remember that, um, this, this does not do justice to it. Let me read you what the definition of the word is. It's trouble, toil, labor, involving extreme weariness and deep fatigue, sometimes used to refer to a hit or a strike, or properly a blow that is so hard it seriously debilitates or weakens. Oftentimes it is used in reference to somebody who is beating their breast in grief or sorrow or intense labor united with trouble. So this is the nature of Christ's work as a sower. It's this extremely toilsome and laborious work. And what exactly is it? You probably already know. His work of sowing, his doing of the will of the one who sent him, is cop on to the infinite extreme. It was the literal bearing of our own hell and the humiliation that he bore in becoming a man and enduring the miseries of this life and suffering at the hands of wicked men, emptying himself completely for our redemption. He was punished by God. He was flogged. He was beaten. He was scorned. He was grieved and nailed to a tree. And he was crucified, um, punished with the death of the worst of sinners, 
the worst of criminals, after which he had finished his work. That was the toilsome, laborious work of Christ. That was his work of a sower. It was this gospel labor of love in order to save us. And we also know that he finished this work on the cross. We have in verse 34 um, a cognate of the same word used here. When Jesus says in, in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was his doing of the will of God who sent him. This was his finishing of the work God had given him to sow. And specifically, the same thing as the gospel labor. Um, this was his sowing, and more than that, this was his food. And that should cause us to pause for a second. Because what we're saying is that his food, what satisfied his deepest desire, his deepest desire being to please God, was to actually do this cop on, was to labor laboriously and toilsomely on the cross, suffering the most extreme pains, and then enduring all the other miseries of this life to save us. This is what satisfied the deepest hunger of his soul. Um, the crop of his product is the elect. It's all of the saved souls of man, all those who are redeemed and are spiritually recreated and are justified and are raised to life through Christ. So in short, the exceedingly difficult and laborious work of Christ is the, the work of the sower, which is the saving work of man. Um, it's the same as his doing of the will of God, and it's also the same work that God gave him to do. It's his true food, and it fulfills his deepest desire. And so when he says in verse 38, others have toiled laboriously, that's Christ, and you have entered into his labor. I want us to now look at it how we enter into his labor. We've just discussed that the joy of God is this work of a sower. It is his becoming a man and enduring the pains of this life and suffering a death on the cross. That's the work that God has given him. Um, and now we find that we enter into his labor and that there's a role for us in this too. So I want us to look now at the second thread in this passage, which is the joy of men. In what sense have we as Christ's disciples entered into Christ's labor? Um, there are many ways to illustrate this. You can think of it as, as if on God's lake, Christ stalks the lake, we're the ones who catch the fish. Or returning to the original metaphor, in um, God's farm, and God's field, his son sows the seed, he saves us, and we reap the crop. We gather them into eternal life. Now, in agriculture, the, the objective of the sower is actually completed through the harvesters. So what the sower intends to do is brought into fruition and worked out and completed in the work of the harvesters or the work of the church in this case. And so we are the means by which Christ's work is brought into fruition and completed through and worked out. The nature of our work as harvesters is this. Harvesters, as you probably know, were responsible for, for reaping the grain or the wheat that, that was produced. They would go in with a sickle or a scythe and cut off the heads, put them in big bunches of piles and leave them to dry, later to bring them into the storehouse. Basically, it's this process of gathering the fruit of the harvest into the granary. That is the work that we have as harvesters, where Christ says, I sent you to harvest. Now, the sending that he's talking about um, was, was specific for the disciples in his calling them um, to, to be fishers of men, but it's also general for us as we have in Matthew chapter 20, um, verse 18, verses 18 through 20, what's often referred to as the Great Commission. Listen as I read it to you. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our commission. This is what Christ has sent us to do. And this is the work of harvesting. We are harvesting what we have not toiled laboriously for, namely our souls and the souls of others. We're bringing ourselves and other people more and more into the storehouse of eternal life. The souls of the lost, just like the sinful and despised and unclean Samaritans, and also from all nations and from our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as our own, we bring them more and more into right relationship with God, more into the spiritual life which Jesus has wrought through his death and resurrection, um, and working out the salvation that Jesus accomplished um, through his sowing work. In short, the spiritual harvest is discipleship. For us, our work as harvesters is the work of discipling. Comparatively speaking, this is the much easier work. We have in verse 38, Jesus says, others have toiled laboriously, implying that others have done this, others have done the hard work, not you. And in the physical harvest, it's clear that that sowing is, is much harder than reaping is. It's much more difficult to prepare the ground and to plant the seed and to cultivate the crop's growth than it is to gather the finished product. However, the difference is, is infinitely more so with Christ. He did all the hard work for us. He literally bore our hell. And though harvesting is difficult, though our job of discipleship is difficult, it is, spiritually speaking, infinitely easier than Christ's work of sowing, than raising up the crop from the ground. Um, thus Christ can say, my burden is easy and my yoke is light because he did all of the hard work for us. He did the work of purchasing us from eternal punishment. Now both the work of the harvester and the reaper are essential to the success of any agricultural operation. You need to have people that plant the seed and then you need to also have people who gather the product of the seed. Um, however, Jesus doesn't need us to do this. He doesn't need us to be his harvesters. He could harvest it himself if he wanted to. But he wants us to do this. He calls us to do this. And he uses us for a very specific reason. We can find out why he commands us to enter his labor, as he says in verse 38, by the purpose statement in verse 36. So that the sower and the harvester may be glad together. This is why he wants us to participate in the harvest. He commands us to do this. He calls us into his labor so that he, the sower, and we, the harvesters, may be glad together. He is most glorified in loving us, and he sincerely desires what is best for us. And God's program for for history and for the future is the way it is for his joy and for the joy of man, because that is what most glorified him. And so our harvest, our involvement in the harvest is what is best for us. Um, and we know this is for our joy. Uh, Jesus talks in, in verse 34 when he says, My food is that I continually do the will of him who sent me, and that I finish his work. The reason why that's his food, is, as we discussed, is because that's what satisfies his deepest desire, which is to please God. Um, thus, his gladness and his joy is complete, and that his supreme desire to glorify God, to please God, is perfectly fulfilled. And he wants us He wants his harvesters, he wants those he saved to partake of this food as well, to enjoy the perfection of happiness with him that comes from doing what pleases God, that comes from fulfilling our greatest desire to please God as well. And so just as as the work of sowing is Jesus' food, 
The work of harvesting is our food. It's what makes us glad, for it's the doing of our Savior's will and the finishing of the work that he has sent us to do. Paul reiterates uh, this truth in, in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about why he preaches without pay. He preaches without pay because that's what pleases God. And it's his reward to preach without pay, not because he gets paid for it, but because it's fulfilling his greatest desire. It's what makes him glad because that's what pleases God and that's what he sincerely wants to do. It's the same thing here when it talks about in verse 36 about the harvester already drawing his wages. We're not getting paid in financial terms or, or in physical terms. Um, we're getting paid because we're doing what, uh, what our Savior wants us to do. Doing what pleases God most is our greatest desire too. And when we do that, it is our reward for doing that. That is our food. That is our source of satisfaction, our gladness. It's what satisfies our deepest hunger as well. And so while in essence... Our food is the same as Christ, doing the will of him who sent us. Um, Specifically, it differs from his, because his work that God gave him was the work of the sower, and for us, it's the work of the harvester. Um, So while it is, in essence, the same, because it's both doing what pleases God, it works itself out differently. The key question for us, in light of this, should be, how do we do God's will? How do we actually do the work that he sent us to do, this work of harvesting, that we too might be satisfied, that that our deepest desires might be fulfilled um, for the glory of God? The the real answer is that you can't. And Jesus makes this clear in verse 32 uh, when he said to his disciples, I have food to eat, which what? Which you have not known of. And what he means there isn't just that they don't know of it now, but that they never have known of this that they don't perceive what he's saying, that they don't understand the true meaning of it, that they've never experienced it themselves, and that this is something that they do not understand. They don't understand this food. And the pronouns are emphatic. They're distancing Christ and his food and his priorities and his hunger from our food and our priorities and our hunger. Um, he's, Christ is saying, this is referring to us apart from him, that we have never had this spiritual food which he has. And if we never have the spiritual food that Christ has, it means we're spiritually starved. We're spiritually dead. We've never had this food, and thus we die. We have not, and we cannot do the will of God. And this is spiritual death. This is what spiritual death is. Spiritual life is the opposite. It's the state of being able to do God's will. It's what we were made for. It's the definition of true life. And when we ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, we essentially lost the food from the tree of life. We cannot do God's will. We cannot please him. And if we can't please him, that means that all we can do is displease him. All we can do is dishonor him and commit evil and crimes against him to hurt, to hurt him and offend him and despise him and reject him. And because God is just, because God's good, he's just, he must punish us for all of our sin. All we can do is displease God. This is, in fact, all that we've done our entire lives. And out of his justice, he must give us exactly what we deserve for this, which we know is an eternity in hell. We cannot change our own ways. We can't fix ourselves, since that would be doing God's will. We can't do that because we're not able to do God's will. We're spiritually dead. It's impossible for us. So there's nothing that, that you can do to change this condition of yours. There's nothing that you can believe that will change that. There's no amount of going to church or reading your Bible or saying prayers that will change that. There's no sinner's prayer that can change that. Nothing. Nothing that you can do at all. The only hope that we have 
Jesus Christ. He's the only thing, the only person which can save us from the spiritual death of ours, from our inability to do God's will. He can do this and he does it for us. He says in verse 34 that continually doing the will of him who sent us and finishing his work is what he does and he does it perfectly. And when he did that, when he did God's will and he finished his work, he did that on our behalf. He did it in our place so that his perfect obedience actually counts for us. He he is our continually doing of God's will. He is our finishing of the work that God has sent us to. Because when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Because Jesus substituted himself for us. Because of this great exchange, when God looks at us, he looks at Christ's perfect submission to his will. And when he looks at Christ, he sees our wicked disobedience. And he repays each of us accordingly. Us with the eternal life that Christ deserved. And Christ with the eternal hell that we deserved. He is, this, he is our food. He is our continual doing of God's will. And in his death, he put to death our own death. And in his resurrection, he raised us to life from our own spiritual death as well. To right relationship with God. And this, this was nothing we, we did or anything that we could do. Instead, God commands all men everywhere to trust in Christ and to be saved. To turn from their sins and trust alone in Jesus to save them. Because Jesus is the only one who can and the Lord is faithful to save all those who trust in him to do so. We must reap what we did not sow. Um, this is his offer to us. And I don't see how anybody could refuse that. Jesus is our food. He is ultimately and presently our doing of God's will and our completing of his work. Ultimately in the sense that we are only obedient to God. We are only obedient in God's eyes if Christ's obedience counts for us. And presently in that it's only possible for us to do God's will right now through Christ. Um, even everything that we do now, even, even the ways in which we obey God and do His will now, is only possible through Christ and with Christ. Our sanctification, in fact, is described by Paul as the working out of our salvation, of becoming more and more like the new creation, the crop that Christ has made us through His toilsome and laborious work of sowing, the work of the gospel. In fact, Paul describes us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, as those who are being saved. In other words, we are continually being saved from sin and from spiritual death and from the world. And we are continually being raised to spiritual life. These things happen at the exact same time. Our harvesting now, our doing of the will of God now, of Him who sent us, is by the Holy Spirit, us gathering the crop out of ourselves and out of our families, and out of our church. It's us bringing us more and more into the storehouse of eternal life, and us into right, more right relationship with God, more like the new person Christ has made us, more like the crop he has yielded from the work of his sowing. What we find, then, is that in the spiritual field, the sower and the harvester work at the same time. Christ is the sower, and his He is always doing God's will for him. He is always producing this crop, and he is always saving us. And we, his disciples, as harvesters, are likewise always striving to continually reap this crop and bring it into eternal life, always working out the salvation which brings us and others closer into spiritual life. He echoes this in the Great Commission, which I read to you earlier. Christ says, I am with you always. He doesn't leave us when he saves us. He continually saves us for the rest of our lives and for eternity. And we continually work this out as well. Our harvesting is our doing of God's will. 
always by and with and through Christ, and is always simultaneous with Christ's saving of us and sanctifying of us, his sowing work. Our reaping and his sowing work together at the same time. And all this, verse 36, so that the sower and the harvester may be glad together. Because our labors are united, our joys are also united. Jesus is our food. He is our joy. He is our gladness. He fulfills our greatest desire, which is to please God. He is our pleasing of God, now and forever as well. So I've given you a a lot of different pieces this morning, and I I would like to put it together in as brief and as summarized as a form as I possibly can. The The main point of all of this is that God's joy is simultaneous with our joy, that it's deeply connected to our joy. And joy being us um, doing what we're supposed to, us, uh, the fulfillment of our deepest desires. And when we talked about the joy of God, we realized that his true and his present reward, his gladness, his source of satisfaction, his fuel and his motivation is the fulfillment of his greatest desire, his greatest hunger, which is to please God out of his infinite love for him. And thus Christ's food is doing what God desires, is completing the work that God has given him. And the work God has given him is the work of the sower. And the work of the sower represents the work of the gospel, the labor of love he, he undertook in order to save our souls. We are the crop of Christ's sowing labor. Um, it is the redemption of his enemies, of sinners like us. And likewise, uh, for us as men, the joy of man, our true and our present reward, our gladness and our source of satisfaction is the fulfillment of our greatest desire, which is also to please God out of our love for him. Thus, we too can say that doing what Christ desires, his will, and completing the work he's given us is our food. It satisfies our spiritual hunger. And this work is the relatively easier work of the harvester than the agricultural metaphor. And that work represents the work of discipleship, making disciples of ourselves and of others. This food, or joy of God and the joy of man, are, are, in, are inseparably linked to each other. For Christ's work of sowing is worked out through his church. And our work of harvesting is worked out through Christ. We reap what he sows and we are working out our salvation at the same time in which he is constantly saving us. Um, They occur simultaneously. And this is the difference between the spiritual harvest and the physical harvest. Um, All for the purpose of the sower and the harvester being glad together. Their labor is their food, their joy. And since their labor is united, their joy is simultaneously united. Thus we arrive at at the thesis uh, of the argument in this passage, which is that God's joy and man's are simultaneous with each other, that they are connected to each other, that they work themselves out through each other, and that our joy specifically is, is by means of Christ. And it's all for his glory. And we can say amen to that because it's only possible through him that we can actually have true joy as well. And so in, in, hearing these, um, in hearing these truths, as a believer, we should hear this in many ways as a call to action, um, not only for our own joy, but, but for the joy of God. When Jesus says in verse 36, Behold, look, see, now is the time for our union uh, in work with Christ, and also it's our time for uniting in Him in joy. And so if you're not, then we need to get our sickle on and, and enter the harvest field to labor in, in the manner in which he sent us to labor. And we should be ashamed if we're standing in the shade watching all of our brothers and sisters work. He sent us to work, and it's not only for our joy that he sent us to work, but it's for his joy. If you're not saved, 
If you're not of his crop, then you should call out this morning uh, for forgiveness of your sins. You should cry out for mercy to Christ, and you should turn to him and trust in him and be saved, and then enter his field and harvest. And if you are saved, then we need to put our hands to the side and enter the field and reap spiritual life from Christ and ourselves and in others, and we need to work as hard as we can. And this manifests itself in, in, in many ways. You'll see yourself devoting um, time and energy to the means of grace, to exercising scripture and prayer and community. You'll actively engage in the discipleship of your family, in the discipleship of your church, in the, evangelization, in, in the evangelism of the world, and in reaching the nations with the gospel, to advance your kingdom, to make disciples like Christ has called you. Such labor is our food. This spiritual harvest, this work God has given us, is our food. It satisfies the deepest hunger of our soul as well, to please Christ. And we love him ultimately because he first loved us. Our joys are inseparable from one another. It's important to recognize that, that he didn't save you for nothing. We are called to go and to make his joy complete and to weary ourselves for the joy of our Savior as he did for us. And not only for the joy of him, but for the joy of our brothers and sisters. And you'll find that when you do that, your own joy will be maximized as well. We're, to make, we're made to maximize the joy of Christ and to maximize the joy of his church. Um, and if you notice, too, that he sent us to do his will, but only Christ has finished the work of, of him who sent him. Only Christ has finished the work that God has given him. He says in verse 38 that we have entered it. Christ has finished it, but we have entered it. So the work is not completed for us. There is still work to be done. There's a saying that's often attributed to Rabbi Tarfon. It's from the Mishnah. And it says that the day is short and the task is great and the laborers are idle and the wage is abundant and the master of the house is urgent. Therefore, work. And I think that you could add to that and you could say that the joy of the church depends on it and our love for the master is greater than all else and we are energized by the spirit for this very purpose and he has called us by his grace into a community in which we can work out and he he promises to be with us. He guarantees our success and eternity hangs in the balance. Therefore, we should go and we should work. The harvest is very short. The time is, is limited. Um, we need to make the most of the time that we have because eventually the doors of the storehouse of eternal life will be closed. Um, I oftentimes hear people talking about uh, how, how much they pray for, for Christ to return, how they want him to come back. And while that's, that's a right thing for us to do biblically, we want to be with Christ. There's nothing better than to be with Christ. We also want to have as much time as we have to serve him and to fight for him and to work for him. Because once it's over, it's over. And what you have here is what will last you for all of eternity. It's what you want to offer him the most pleasing service possible. Especially after his laborious, toilsome work for us. We want to present him nothing less than the best service that we possibly can here. We want to harvest the most. Um, We want to present to him the greatest yield that we possibly can. And we also know that the crop in the storehouse will be enjoyed forever. But all of those all of the produce outside of the, outside of the storehouse will surely be destroyed by the winter. And so if you're not saved, you should hear this as, as an urgent call for you to trust in Christ and to repent. Um, and if you are saved, then you should be motivated to go out and to gather as much into the storehouse as possible and as much as, as of yourself in the storehouse as possible, more and more every single day. Um, let's pray. Father, this is only possible through you. 
You are our doing of God's will. Jesus, you are our completing of the work that he has sent us to. You are our food. You're our source of gladness and true delight and joy. And we praise you and thank you for the laborious work of the sower that you did for us. We ask that you would cause us to be the best harvesters that we possibly can, that you would make our joy complete, and that you would complete your own joy in, in, in working out the work of your, your sower and bringing into fruition uh, this crop that you've yielded. We ask that you would be the most pleased in us possible, that we would make the most of the time you have given us, and that you would be the most pleased with our service when we come before you, either when we die or when you come again. We pray this all in your name and for your glory. Amen.